0: been here, to first Thessalonians again. Um, And so this is our, well, my first week in it, Cody kind of introduced things for you last week, uh, more or less. Um, And I'm going to actually back up and we'll, we'll read uh, a little bit before and a little bit behind uh, the passage I'm going to talk about today. We'll read one to seven, but um, let me go ahead and do that while Debbie is is there. So Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is the word of the Lord. God. Good to be here. Um, I was out for five Sundays, um, not vacationing, everybody. Sabbathing. It's um, really different. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, you got to pick one, I guess. Um, but we were I was mostly here in town, um, although under the radar, and, uh, and so it was, it was good. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that um, after six and a half years here. Um, and then this last week I was in Indianapolis for a General Assembly, so that was, that was good to be there as well. I'd never been to General Assembly before, um, so it was exciting to see the operations of the Global Church of the Nazarene. Um, at work in the Indianapolis Convention Center. So uh, maybe one day we can, we can talk about uh, all of that here. But our, our text here that Cody introduced last week, we've kind of come through the season of Easter. We've come through Pentecost. I tasked um, uh, Debbie with the wonderful task of preaching on Trinity Sunday, um, and I hear she did a great job. Um, so thank you to everybody who was here, to Cody, to Janine, to Debbie, who preached for us while I was away. Uh, To those that led worship, it's just really, really been good. Um, So if you want to know the story of what happened with Paul in 1 Thessalonians, you really need to go to Acts 17 and and 18. That's the part of Acts that tells of his interaction with this congregation. He had gone on a missionary journey um, based out of the city of Antioch, which was this really interesting and unique congregation in the early church. It was the first one where people were called Christians. Um, and it was the first congregation where you really had this deep interaction between Jews and Gentiles. Paul didn't make up this thing um, called the, the, the blending of these two cultures, but it was in large part where he was discipled, and it's how he took his missionary journey out. So his first missionary journey, he goes with a guy named uh, Barnabas, and they just kind of go on a little loop through Cyprus and a few different places. Um, And then on his second missionary journey, he says, I want to go again and I want to visit those churches. Uh, The Spirit has some other um, ideas for him and pushes him further out into Macedonia. But he doesn't go with Barnabas this time. He goes with a guy named Silas. And you'll see that right up at the beginning of the book. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy. First Thessalonians, you might know, um, is probably, likely, depending on who you ask, the first letter that Paul writes, that we have, um, to one of his churches. And he writes it because when he gets, the Spirit sort of pushes him up through Asia Minor and up into Macedonia, which is where uh, Alexander the Great comes from. It's it's this sort of mountainous region north of Greece. And he, and he gets to this city of Thessalonica, and he does what he always does, which is he goes to the synagogue to teach and to preach and to let people know what it is that's going on. And yes, there, and he teaches and preaches for several weeks that Jesus is the Messiah. So why does he go to the synagogue? You can talk back, it's fine. Yeah, David. Okay, maybe. Yep, that's part of it. But it 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 also has something to do with the fact that they know what a Messiah is. Right? They're, they're aware of how this announcement, like reverberates out. But but after a couple weeks in the synagogue, some of the leaders in the synagogue start to get upset, and they get some of the the leaders in Thessalonica upset. And if you're in the ancient world, if you're in kind of the Rome world, your number one concern is that Rome continues to like you, right? Right? that Rome doesn't see you as a threat. They don't actually have to like you. They just have to not see you as a threat and believe that you're going to continue to pay taxes. And, And the thing that really messes up taxes is riots and mobs. And so Paul is doing this thing, and people are listening to what he's saying and hearing what he's saying. And a big part of what he's saying is that Jesus is Lord, which sounds fairly normal to us, so that we can stand up and sing something like crown him with many crowns. We can say he is Lord over all, especially this terrestrial ball, right? I just Over and over, that language of terrestrial ball shows up in that hymn. <laughs> but what's that? Say? Like there is no place on earth that he is not Lord. That sounds great to us. Y'all can say amen. I can say this knowing that we're streaming online, and I don't worry about the threat <laughs> that that brings. But for Paul to stand up in public and say that Jesus is Lord, the, the implication is that Caesar is not, right? There can only be one Lord, like Highlander. There can only be one. There can only be one. So if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is somehow a sub-Lord. Like, yeah, he still has his throne, but, but he's really like, I don't know, Speaker of the House or something. Like, and Caesars don't like to be demoted. They like to know and believe that they're on top. So this is a really, actually, kind of threatening thing that he's saying. The Jewish leaders know it. The secular sort of Gentile leaders know it. And so they start to stir people up. And there's a mob that comes after Paul. After they kick him out of the synagogue, he just goes next door to this guy named Jason's house, who's probably Greek. Jason is not a particularly Jewish name. right? He goes next door to Jason's house, and he starts saying what? The same thing. (laughs) He starts saying and preaching the same thing, because although salvation goes to the Jews first, it's really the same message. And he continues to walk out, and over time, he converts, it says, several prominent women, God-fearing Greeks. The God-fearing Greeks would have been people, this is going to be important later, They would have been people who said, we know that the world that we live in is broken. And we know that the Greek gods don't have the answer. And we know that Caesar doesn't really have the answer. So we're going to go on a search. And there were a lot of people in the Roman world who were on a search. A lot of them would have ended up in the synagogue. In a place where they said, if somebody's going to be Lord, he should probably be Lord of all. The Jews are willing to come out and say that here he is, the creator of heaven and earth. Let's see what this is about. But they couldn't fully join. If you're a God-fearing Greek, you're always sitting out here on the side, and you're never quite invited into the middle. Even if you like do the whole thing of getting circumcised and becoming kind of like ethnically Jewish, you're there, but at the same time, in order to do that, you lose your whole culture. You lose your family. You lose your job. You lose everything that you are and everything that you know. So you just kind of get used to living a life on the side. You just kind of get used to living this life on the fringe. And those God fearing Greeks are maybe content, maybe not, to sit on the outside and watch what's happening, knowing and believing and learning about the God of Israel, but always as spectators, never as players. Never getting on the field. When the conflict happened and the mob showed up and the rabble rousing and the rebellion, this accusation comes against Paul. What they say in Acts 17 is that this man and those with him are turning the world upside down, right? Which this is the same kind of accusation that eventually that they bring against Jesus. There's a whole lot of people following him. And we're not sure how to, what to do with it, and we're not sure how to control it. So because we can't control it, we crucify So Paul goes to jail. They pick him up, and they, they send him into jail. Jason, his good buddy, comes and posts bail for him. So he gets out, but then they immediately just kind of send him on to the next town. So here's the thing. Paul spent, I don't know, maybe two months in Thessalonica. You know, he was at synagogue for three weeks, and then he's in Jason's house for a couple weeks. Things maybe, you know, it wasn't social media days. Things kind of unfolded a little slower. He spends about two months in Thessalonica, and in that time, he plants a church. It took me six weeks to kind of recover uh, from From seven years of ministry. So the fact that he planted a church in two months is just like to me. He plants this church in two months and he's gone. He's on to Berea, he's on to Athens, he's on to Corinth. He probably wrote this letter from Corinth and he writes it with this view to say, I only had a little bit of time with you. And there's some more things I need you to know. I need you to press on a little bit further into these things. Unlike most of his letters, he's not like correcting a big problem, right? He's not writing back to them going, you guys are really missing it. You guys are screwing up bad. I need to fix this. He writes this letter actually to to encourage them. But he does it in this little sly way. And so um, there's kind of these things that happen in Paul uh, where he will encourage them, and he'll tell them, you know, I'm so thankful that you are XYZ, right? But what he's really doing is saying, like, you did that once, can you please do it again? Right? I mean, the example is like, my wife came home two or three months ago and went, wow, thank you for cleaning the bathroom. That's so wonderful that you cleaned the bathroom. (laughs) What's she saying? Yeah, Glory, right? What's she saying? She's not saying, I am so, I mean, she might be saying a little bit, I'm really grateful for that one time you cleaned the bathroom. But what's she really saying? Could you, like, maybe, like, not do that once every six months? Like, could that be a little more regular? It's not that crazy. <laughs> right? And this is how Paul talks to his people. So I'm so thankful for the, uh, what is it? <laughs> I'm so thankful for the, Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. right? Is Paul grateful for those things in the Thessalonians? Yes. Is he also hoping that by thanking them for it, they continue to lean into that and embrace that as part of who they are? Yes. Right? There's this thing going on where by encouraging them, he's seeking to grow something in them. You want an example of that? you could come to our staff meetings or read the notes where Cody goes around and thanks every single person in the room for what they've done over the last month. And then this week I sit down in staff meeting and everybody else in the room goes around and thanks every single person for what they've done over the last month. Is that because we're all so grateful? Yes, a little bit. But it's more because Cody has called that out of us right he's seen that stuff he's named that stuff and all of a sudden we go okay this is a little bit of who we want to be it takes a couple of years but eventually we get there right it's the same thing paul is doing in his letter so as he writes back to the thessalonians he becomes this kind of parental figure and we'll see that language later on he says he actually says i'm like a nursing mother right and like a father kind of gives himself both of those relationships to them, saying, I was bringing you into this world. And I can take you out of it. No, I I was bringing you into this world, and I want to continue to encourage you gently. He tells them in these verses, in verse uh, 2 and 3, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father Your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says he is constantly remembering them, a.k.a. he's constantly praying for them before God for their faith, their hope, and their love. You can see in Paul the pain of being taken away from this church that he loves. The difficulty of not being able to be with them and walk with them to maturity not be able to lead them into the fullness of the gospel that he preached to them. Instead, really what he gets is a chance to announce it, to describe it a little bit, to organize a couple things, and then he's out. And you can understand, if you have this kind of affection with somebody, and then all of a sudden they're kind of taken from you, either by your own, something that happens to you or not. It's painful. You're with somebody and you minister to them, and then... Like just when they're starting to get it, they graduate high school at thief, Right? Just when it's starting to click, they're off to University of Nebraska. And you're just going, Boy, I sure hope this goes okay. Right? I sure hope they don't end up with somebody who's gonna take everything I planted in them and twist it and morph it and mold it into something it shouldn't be. He's in pain to be torn from them to have so much more to say. But it really is this kind of sweet pain for Paul that it's hard to be apart, but there's gratitude and thanksgiving for who they are. And so he tells him in verse 4 For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And this is really critical, I think, for us to hear. What is our gospel? <laughs> Paul says our gospel. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, right? Paul and his co-workers, Paul and his co-laborers. Did they somehow have a different gospel? Was there a different message? No. You know what a gospel is? Good news, yeah, but of what? Yeah, but of what? Okay, before Jesus, what's a gospel? Okay, a Savior is born. We're getting closer. So so in the ancient world, if we live in, I don't know, pick a place, Parthia. I forget where Parthia is. I think it's like way far away, right? And, and, and the Roman army comes in and conquers the Parthian army. Hypothetically. And we live in some village in Parthia. We have no interaction with the battle. We didn't see what happened. It takes weeks and months for all of this stuff to to show up, right? But here we are, way out in our village, and somebody comes in with a big red cape, looking like a captain of something, and they nail something to a wall. Do you know what that thing they nail to the wall is? It's a gospel. It says, good news. Caesar is your king now, right? Good news. (laughs) Your old terrible rulers who couldn't even win a battle, they're no longer your rulers. Now it's Caesar. That's a gospel. The gospel is an announcement of a change of authority. So Paul comes into Thessalonica. He steps into the synagogue, and he says, good news. The difference is this isn't just sort of switching out human leaders who over time always kind of end up the same. Paul's gospel is that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we, all of us, whether or not we belong to the people of Israel, can be bound into the very body of Christ. That all of us, regardless of where we come from, have access to the kingdom of God. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So the gospel is first off, that God did not stay far away from us, but God entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a woman. He took on history and finiteness and everything that it means to become human. That he stepped into our history that he bore all of that difficulty, that he set up boundaries and said, essentially, hey, hell, (laughs) and all the enemies and forces that are set against God, these people are with me. Anybody who chooses to be with me is with me. And you don't get to come any further. But not only that, they're with me, and because they are with me, the world is being made whole. The world which has separated itself from me is being made whole, which means that the power of sin, that the power of death, and everything that entails has an end date. It's got an expiration date. So Paul comes in with this really bold statement that look, I know suffering is real, I know pain is real, I know that death is happening, and he's going to wrestle with that later in 1 Thessalonians but it has an expiration date. Because the one who really reigns, the one who is Lord, has been to death. He's gone all the way down into it, and he's come up out of it, loosing its grip on reality. The world is being reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. So the more that we lean into faith, the more that we lean into hope, the more that we lean into love, as we see and know them in Jesus Christ, the more we participate in that wholeness, in that reconciliation. And slowly but surely, the brokenness of the world is being expelled by the goodness and the grace of our risen Lord. You know, oftentimes, in our world, people want to take that gospel, that notice of liberation, and they want to kind of assign it to the thing that makes sense to them. So conservatives in our world will often say, look, the gospel is good news. We all get to be free from sin. Right? And that's true. And other political persuasions, I guess, will come and say, look, the gospel is good news. We all get to be free from political oppression. God's throwing <laughs> off the kings. He's throwing off the rulers. He's turning everything upside down. And guess what? That's true. God is. God is freeing us from the oppression of this world. But we don't get to separate those things out as though they are two separate things. Paul won't let them go, he holds them together. That is Paul's gospel, which is the same as Matthew, and it's the same as Mark, and it's the same as Luke, and the same as John, and every other Christian preacher who stepped out into the Roman world. Say, look, the powers that you see at work here are finite and they will end. God is setting us free to a new society, to a new way of living. At the same time, the sin that has a grip on you, it also has an expiration date. And God is setting us free to a new way of living. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But what the church in Thessalonica has to figure out is how to be that church that is living in that reconciliation amongst a people, the Roman world, who cares nothing for it, who wants desperately to hang on to their old practices, who wants desperately to hang on to their old ways of doing things. In other words, what of those who refuse to be reconciled? And this is where Paul does something incredibly powerful. Remember those God-fearing Greeks who are sitting on the fringe, who are sitting on the edge, who never, they could show up to services, but never participate. Listen to the word he uses. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Chosen. Elected that he has taken you out of the world for the thing that he wants to do. To be chosen is is to be seen and known and picked. It means you belong. And if you're a God-fearing Greek, the story that you're living with in your head is that I could never actually belong that I could come and I could be on the side and I could kind of see what's going on, but there's no way for me to actually enter into the game. I can't enter into this story. It's somebody else's story. This is the Jew's story, and I think it's true, but I don't get to be a part of it. And how many of us live with that lie? That God's doing something in the world, but I can't be chosen for it. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too in the middle, I'm not smart enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not rich enough. We live with that idea, and sometimes it's a cop-out so that we don't have to take responsibility. Sometimes it's this deep, deep belief that we are not enough. But Paul says to these God-fearing Greeks, He uses the exact same word that the Lord uses for Israel. I have chosen you. You are not only beloved by me, you're beloved by God, and I've chosen you. This beloved language, this chosen language, this is the way God talks to Israel. It's the way he talks to the Jews. And Paul, all of a sudden, has taken this and he's turned it toward the Gentiles who have responded to Jesus in faith. Paul is telling these people, your place is no longer on the fringe. Your place is no longer on the edge. Your place is no longer in the stands or on the bench. You are being invited into what's going on here. And not only are you invited, but we need you. We need your love. We need your faith. We need your hope if we're going to persevere through the things that are coming. They've gone from this place of having this unfulfillable longing to being embraced. One more word. Gospel and chosenness. One more word here that he uses. Because our gospel came to you, verse 5, not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, a lot of times you'll read something like that in word and kind of indeed, right? Like it came in word, I preached it, but I also did something about it. It came in power with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And, and maybe, I don't know, we don't get a lot of like miracles that Paul worked, but maybe it was that he showed up in Thessalonica and he was preaching in the synagogue, but then he's also like healing people. Or, I don't know, making people walk or healing the blind or whatever. Like, he's doing these works. And that that may have been the case. But we don't have that part of the story. What part of the story do, do we have? The part of the story that we do have is that Paul was able and willing to suffer the ramifications of preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. And this is where I think we sometimes have our heads turned around, right? Where it's like, well, I could really believe or I could really trust or I could really live this life that God has for me if if I could see something amazing, right? Or if God would do something, like if God would give me the tingles and I could heal somebody who needed to be healed, then I would know that the power of God was in me because the laws of nature were broken. But more often than not, the life that we're actually called to live and the way that we're called to live out our discipleship is not through like miraculous events in which the laws of nature are broken, but through the ability to do the same thing that Jesus did at the end of his ministry, which is to die well, to suffer well, to bear rejection, and to remain faithful. To trust that God alone is the one who raises the dead. What is it that Paul does when he gets to Thessalonica? He preaches. He's sent to prison. And he suffers well. Have you ever heard somebody preach or speak, and we're getting ready for a Another political cycle. So I guess this is my preparation for you. You hear somebody stand up and speak, or they get on TV, and you watch them in the debate, and you go, "That sounds good." They don't believe it, right? <laughs> like, I know what they're saying, but there's no way that person actually would die for that. There's no way. There's no way that if if they were, if it really came down to it that they're going to give up something personally for this message that they're bringing to us. They're saying this because they know that it's what I want to hear. And Paul's there writing to Thessalonica saying, this wasn't that kind of message. I showed up and I spoke it, but I hurt for it. You can see that I did it with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction because my life was harmed in the midst of it and I didn't give up on what I was saying. So I might be wrong, but you can't say I don't believe it. Right? Like I it's possible that I'm wrong. That that's maybe for somebody else to decide, but you can't say that this is like some trick that I'm working. Power, the spirit with full conviction. These aren't just words about redemption. This guy will suffer for it. And further, when you take the messenger and you put it put him under pressure, does he flinch? Does he look to someone else or something else? And I hope you hear that encouragement. (laughs) That maybe what we need as a people, maybe what we need as the church, is the ability to be put under pressure and not flinch. To say, I believe it and I say it, but I'm living it with power and with the Holy Spirit and with conviction. In verses 7 and 8, Paul commends their imitation. He says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. Or verse 6 and 7, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. So what is it? What is it for you today? What is it for us as a church? Is it power that we need? Is it the conviction? Is it the Holy Spirit to be able to live under affliction, to live under rejection, maybe to live under some boredom? and not flinch from the message? Maybe what you need to hear today is the gospel. Not to forget that this is a message of liberation. That we are freed from the powers of sin and death that want to grip us down to our very soul. That we are freed because Jesus is Lord. We are free from those powers that would use and shape our society to benefit themselves and no one else. We are freed to live in the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of reconciliation, which is a kingdom of peace, which is a kingdom in which I don't have to create my own significance for myself. I get to attach myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and give thanks to him for that. Maybe the message you need to hear today is the message of your chosenness. That regardless of your origins, regardless of whether or not you think you belong to this congregation, regardless of whether your family or your friends or the people you interact with on a daily basis tell you that you belong, you in Jesus Christ are chosen. You're chosen to get into the game and to do the work do the work of proclaiming that gospel knowing that you have the capacity to suffer and that our real power consists not in our ability to raise the dead or heal the sick or make fireworks come out of our fingers. What did I say on Wednesday? To make koalas jump out of our fingernails. (laughs) Our real power in Christ consists in our integrity and our ability to serve and love the Lord with all that we have and all that we are, knowing that his love has pierced us to the very core of our being. I pray that as we come to the table today, that we'll do it with a deep sense of his love for us, with a deep sense of our chosenness, that you in Christ have been chosen to share this meaning. A meal that announces to the world that the Lord is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We do this not only for our own salvation, but for the life of the world. I invite you, as Cody comes, to examine your heart and examine your life today. Knowing that all who trust in Jesus Christ are welcome to come and eat. And as we go out from this place, to embody that witness and that hope to the world. Let's pray. Lord God. In your mercy, you have called us into this place to hear your word, to share at your table. Give us a deep sense of the presence of your Son, we pray, so that rather than being tripped up by our own weakness, by our own isolation, by our own lack of power, Lord God, we would be enabled and engaged to go forth into the world with a deep sense of your mercy and of your peace. We pray it in your name.